The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Lord, we do look to you, a great warrior, to come and to save, to rescue us. We're going to see that in this passage. So I I do want to ask you, Lord, to open our eyes to it and to begin to help us think about it, help us to think about it more, more deeply. As we look at this passage, let's consider what you say in it. So I ask you for that. That's, That's my request. But we should pause here before we, before we ask too much and, and move on. We should pause to say, you are marvelous. The facts that we just sang about in a, in a fun and, and engaging way that you will find out every one of your foes And on a day of tremendous glory and dread, both, that day is coming, it's real. On a day of glory and dread, by your grace alone, most of us here, I I trust, I don't know all here, but most of us here will find that to be a day of glory and will sing and dance for joy. All by grace all by a gift from you. Bless your name for that, God Almighty. You have done something marvelous and you are going to do something marvelous. Thank you. Help us to think about that a little more this morning, Lord. Strengthen us with that fact. Hold this truth near to our hearts. Place it in there. Cause it to grow. Cause it to sprout up and become some some tree that gives shade to our souls amidst sometimes scorching hot sun. Give relief now from the fact that you will give relief forever one day. Make your word clear. Guide my words as as I already prayed, guide my words that they would be faithful to the text and would be helpful to your people and would be useful for your honor and for your kingdom. That's what we're concerned about, your honor, your kingdom. You alone are Lord. So come and fill this place, Father, Son, and Spirit. Make your word run. We said of old that you would cause your word to run you would cause it to go out and to accomplish your purpose. Do that again this morning amongst this place, amongst these people in this place. Have your way with us, Lord, we pray. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We turn our attention this this morning to 1 Samuel chapter 30 where we read the final word on David from this book. Now, of course, there's a lot more about him in 2 Samuel because originally 1 and 2 Samuel were together as one. But it's been divided for us. And it's, it's separated here at a very helpful point as it comes to a, a climax. There's 
much to see here at this climactic end, which is also a new beginning. A lot to see, but there's not much suspense for us, though, because we already know what's going to happen. We've been told already back in chapter 28 and 29 where we saw that God came and, and spoke, finally spoke to Saul as he was seeking him out and seeking him out and seeking him out and couldn't get an answer. God finally came and told him the bad news. Today is the day of judgment. Now I am going to do what for 10, 15 years I've been saying I was going to do. It's finally come. That day has finally come. I am going to now take the kingdom away from you, Saul, and give it to one better than you. Give it to David. That's happening tomorrow. He tells him that. So we know what's happening. There's no suspense in it for us. But David has no idea. In the meantime, he has a, a big problem of his own. In seeking to flee away from David, away from Saul, and to find some refuge from Saul, he went over to the land of the Philistines. And while that worked for a little while, unwittingly, he got him drafted into Achish's army, and he's been called upon to march against Israel and fight against Israel and against Saul, something which he just cannot do, but which he cannot get out of either. So he's stuck. Until, that is, the other Philistine lords, Achish is one of them and he has other companions, the other Philistine lords just happen to see the Hebrew mercenary contingent, Achish's army was added he added in all of david's men they see the the hebrews there and then achish just happened to blab about david being the leader of them about david's presence and the commanders just happened to recall that old old song about david slaying his ten thousands philistines that was just coincidentally just happened to be coined by the the jewish women as they celebrated with great delight david's victory when he was a teenager all those years back it just happened thus and so. just happened according to the providence of God. Nothing just happens. We considered the providence of God last week and, and applied it to life. Not, not a thing just happens. All things are worked by God according to his plan, to his purpose. Yes, he uses people. He uses secondary agents. He uses the, the Lord. He uses Achish. He uses the women. He uses David. Of course, absolutely. He is always at work, though, to bring glory to his own name and good to his people, providentially. What a joy, what a delight it is to live in light of that doctrine of providence. That's where we ended last week, and that's where we have to end, because all doctrine is for life. Doctrine is not just so you know. It's so you know, so you live. Doctrine is for living, and to live according to right doctrine. We all live according to doctrine. To live according to right doctrine, to live according to truth, is a great delight, a great joy, especially this one. Providence is sweet. It tells us whose hand rests on everything in life and tells us that this God who is good to us is at work in everything to accomplish his purposes for us. It's a great, delightful, joyful thing to live in light of providence everywhere everywhere in this book and again in our passage today always shows up again and there's more also so we won't just be talking about providence and in fact i won't primarily talk about providence at all there's more here that i want to elaborate on we're going to see it again though and see the role that it plays in god's work so let me read the passage this is all of first samuel chapter 30 
and I'll pass back to Rick to make sure that we understand the details of what's going on and to make a couple of observations. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, they'd been sent home from the camp, they came home to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. And they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. When David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued, he and 400 men, 200 stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. And they gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong? And where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil, or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, and who had been left at the brook Besor, 
And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered. Except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoils of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Eror, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Laskal, in the cities of the Jaramealites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Bor-Ashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. The word of the Lord. chapter begins with David having been sent away from the, the camp of the Philistines. He and the men relieved, no doubt, that they've, they've found a way out of this predicament. And they cover the 60 miles or so, about 60 miles back home and arrive there to discover a disaster. Relief comes crashing down. While they were gone, the Amalekites, it's the Amalekites again, this enemy of Israel that Saul had refused to destroy, that David's been fighting against, the Amalekites had come. They heard the Philistines were heading off to Israel. They decided to do some raiding. And they attacked several places, including David and his men's hometown. And because there were no bodies left behind in the city, there weren't any dead bodies in the city, they realized that they had taken all of the women and children alive. It says that in verses 2 and in 3, emphasizing that that's not really good news seems like it to us and to be honest it does provide a very narrow window of opportunity by which they might be able to pursue them and overtake them and and release them you know recover the, the captives but how on earth does one do that it's a great big wide open wilderness out there they have several days head start where are they even who are they even so while there is a very narrow window, it would take a miracle or, or an act of providential guidance or something. If that's going to happen, it's probably not going to happen. So it would have been better that they would have been dead because at least that pain would end. If they've been taken alive, they are to be sold as slaves. And you'll know forever that my wife and my children live on enslaved and abused somewhere by somebody. That's, that's the torment that keeps on giving year after year after year. So the men, when they see this, verse 4, weep and wail and weep and wail until they have no more strength to weep and wail. David with them because his wives have been taken also. You've you got you to put yourself in this verse. These, these men, they are not overly sensitive guys a lot of them are thugs they can be called later wicked and worthless fellows these are hardened men soldiers 
some of them quasi-criminals, and they weep and they wail and they weep and they wail and they weep and they wail until they can't weep and wail anymore. Because utter disaster and despair has come upon them. And David himself has suffered the same fate and worse. Verse 5, he is greatly distressed because the men were talking of stoning him, blaming him for all this. We should have left somebody behind to guard the city. We should have never come in this Philistine land in the first place. What was this guy thinking? They're going to blame it all on him. And so they're talking about stoning him. This is, this is a deep low point in David's life. And he responds to that great distress by, it says, strengthening himself in the Lord his God. We're going to talk about that. And then by seeking the guidance of the Lord by means of the priest and the ephod. He has the priest, the only remaining living priest after Saul killed all of them, and the ephod, which what you'll recall was that special device that priests would wear when they went to intercede before God. And so he says, bring the ephod. I want to I ask God for guidance. And he says, should I go? Is it worth it? Are we going to find him? And God says, yes, you will find and you will surely rescue them. So still not even knowing who they are or where they went, they head out and verse 11's innocence is almost humorous. If this was a movie, you would not believe it. They found, they, they found an Egyptian in the open country. Right. Just lying out there all by himself in the middle of nowhere. And of course, he's from the raiding party. Of course. Seriously, tr- the reason that truth is stranger than fiction is that truth has a providential God behind it, and people aren't bold enough to write fiction like that. Truth is stranger than fiction. God parked an Egyptian out there who just happened to be so sick that his master was sure he was going to die, but not so sick that he actually was going to die. And not so sick that he would die if left alone without food and water in the desert for three days. That's a very narrow window of health. (laughs) And God parked him right where David and the guys would just find him. And they feed him. And they ask him, who are you? Where are you from? I'm from the raiding party. Sure. Of course. I could, couldn't I not download all of last week's sermon right here? It all fits right here. All the time. Okay, can you lead me to them? Yes, I can. And David comes to the camp and finds them having a great big party. They had taken great spoil from all these different places that were virtually defenseless that they'd raided. They'd scooped up a massive spoil, and they're about to be filthy, stinking rich when they sell thousands of slaves. Remember, the, all of the wives and children from David's 600 men alone are thousands of people. They have a lot of people that they're going to sell. They're having a huge party. And then David comes to take it all away. It says he struck them from twilight until evening of the next day. And a twilight is a word that can apply to dusk or to dawn. It just means dim light. And remember, in, in that time and place, days were reckoned as beginning at nightfall. So twilight of the next day is probably dusk. Or, or dawn, evening the next day is probably dusk, and twilight is probably dawn. It probably means they fought all day long. Probably attacked them when they were hungover, first light. 
And some of them got away, fled away on camels, but he was tremendously successful. And Freed recovered absolutely everything. The text emphasizes that. Every single person, every single animal, everything was recovered by David. And it's by David. He's presented here as as the warrior, as the man, as if he is the only one doing this. David by name is mentioned 25 times in this chapter. It is David, 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 David. Over and over and over again. He's the leader. He's the intercessor. He's the warrior. He recovered what was lost. He rescued. He brought back. Nothing was missing. Not a bit. So that the people, as they're leading on all the extra stuff that they gathered, said, this is all David's spoil. Which he then graciously shares. He passes out to those who were too weak to go with him but are still his people. And he passes out to friends too. All those that had sheltered him for years in the various cities of Judah. Here's David coming in in a moment of the deepest despair that he and his men ever knew. Strengthening himself in the Lord. Waging Fierce, effective combat to set the captives free and then give out all these gifts to men. What are we talking about here? Well, let's see. Well, we're talking about the gospel. (laughs) Come on, we're talking about the gospel. We'll come to that. I'm going to make two observations and, and kind of move us towards how this sets us up to see what the salvation of David looks like. So I'll make two observations here. The first one, oh man, look at the grace of God here. The grace of God rescuing His people through David. That's my first observation. Behold the grace of God rescuing His people through David. Obviously, the chapter is about a great rescue. Both the rescue of those who are taken away as captives, the the women and the children, but also a rescue of the men out of their moment of great despair. There's obviously concern and anguish, and it starts out at the lowest point possible and ends up flushed with victory, prospered, enriched, set free. There is a great change of of weeping into dancing and dark night turning into day all by the grace of God. And it is the Lord who does it. Yes, through David, we'll come to that. We We have to stop and see that it is the Lord who is doing this. It's the Lord who brought them to the city. It's the Lord who strengthened David. It's the Lord who guided them. It's the Lord who parked the Egyptian in the desert. It's the Lord who gave them strength in battle. This is the Lord. It is the God of grace at work to save. David's really clear about that. Verse 23, he tactfully confronts the greed and anger in the men. They they want to keep it because you didn't earn it. We did. that's, That's the philosophy there. These 200 say behind, they didn't earn any of this. We did. David says, none of us earned any of it. It has all been given to us by the Lord. He is the one who recovered. It says this very clearly. 
You shall not do so, my brothers, for what the Lord has given us, verse 23. He has preserved us. He has given into our hand this band that came against us. That's the work of the Lord. Yes, they marched and they found and they interrogated and they pursued and they trapped them and they attacked them and they destroyed them and they liberated them and they plundered them. That was real men doing real things. They, they did that. But it's the Lord carrying out His purposes. It's the Lord intending to set His people free. This is the work of God. A work of grace. A marvelously sweet picture. As I've thought about this sermon this week and thought about this passage this week, it's, it's right here at this point that I have been kind of captured and drawn and I have hoped that God would, would work amongst people so that certain people, and I don't really know who, but that certain people would see what a gracious God. What a marvelous tender, compassionate, dear God this is. That in weeping, can you imagine? God says, I'm going to fix that. And by the end of the chapter, you'll be rejoicing. You know that, but some of you need to hear that. Because right now you are weeping. There is a God who is gracious and marvelously compassionate. There is a God who is gracious and marvelously compassionate. There is. He's a God who is not far from you, but a God who is near. Do you need Him? This sermon, this passage, this concept, some of you, this needs to land in your life. Many of us probably we need to store this up for another day. But some of you need it right at this moment. Oh my God, open your eyes and open your heart and drive this in and cause it to run through and stain, in a good way, stain every fiber of your being so that you know and believe there is a God who sees my tears and wants to and will and in fact already has begun to move to fix this. I say already has because we need to look at this again and think about something. Let me approach it like this. God didn't decide to rescue when He saw their tears. Do you realize that? They arrive home and start weeping. He's already parked an Egyptian in the desert three days ago. He already sent them home from the Philistine camp three days ago. They discover the work has already begun. He's already at work to address the concern of their hearts. Let's keep thinking about that, though, because 
the God who providentially controls all things and sent an Egyptian sick into the desert and sent them home from the Philistine camp did not send them home in time to stop the attack. And the same God who providentially parked the Egyptian in the desert and sent them home from the camp not in time to stop the attack is the same one who sent them away in the first place. God has been way ahead of the curve on this. He meant for all this to happen. He meant to send them away and then bring them back, not in time, so that the tears would flow. He meant that. Knowing already, there's the Egyptian waiting for you. There's a camp waiting for you. Every single one of them is alive. By the end of the week, by the end of tomorrow, you will be singing for joy. You realize that. You see all that? It's important to see all that. Because then a big question arises, what's going on? Why? Why would God do that? Why would God act to create a situation that he just intends tomorrow to fix so that by the end of the week, all of the people are in the very same homes where they were, very same city where they were, just like previous week. Why bother? What's God doing here? Now, hesitantly... I'm going to answer that question. I say hesitantly because whenever you ask a question, what's God doing here? We have to be very clear. God's doing a thousand things here. Thousands of thousands of things here. And I have no idea what most of them are. In, in, this, in this text, in the situations in our lives, God's doing a thousand, thousand things. In everything that happens to you, everything that you bump into. And so to ask, what's God doing here? At best, you might catch just a glimpse of it There is far more, and we need to just acknowledge he is far smarter than I am. His ways are high above mine. But we can see a little bit. What's God doing here? I think this event serves a couple of purposes. It serves to point out what the rescuing nature and work of God is like, what the nature of God is like, what his work is like. And it serves to point out who the rescuing agent is and what he's like. What's God doing? He's serving to point out what his saving work is like and what his saving agent is like. He creates an opportunity here at the climax of this book to revisit the pain and the sorrow and the longing that marked the beginning of the book. You remember Hannah back in chapter 1? Some weren't here back then, but a year ago, 10 months ago, whatever it was, we were back in chapter 1, and we met a woman named Hannah, and the text describes her deeply distressed and weeping bitterly. Why? No children. Huh, that sounds familiar. Deeply distressed and weeping bitterly as she suffers in the face of not just having no children, but suffers in the face of of an arrogant partner of sorts. 
who constantly heaps abuse on her and taunts her and ridicules her. And she lives in a society that is ruled by evil, wicked priests, Eli and his sons, who are no good, you remember. Stealing from the people, abusing women, assaulting them, in fact, at the temple. Hannah lives in in a place there, and others with her live in a place there in the midst of of a sinful society, corrupt, troubled, robbed, abused, weeping and bitter, lowly and poor and downcast. And they cry out to God there. Hannah cries out in prayer. Seeing God take, take a first step towards deliverance and giving her a son, she cries out in prayer in chapter 2, longing for the day when all of the arrogant and all of the wicked and all of the high and mighty will be brought down and the shoe will be put on the other foot and the lowly will be lift up, lifted up. She's weeping in the beginning. And God steps just a little bit to fix that. But not enough. Not enough. That gets revisited here now at the end of the book in chapter 30. Weeping, downcast, despairing people. God moves and lifts up and delivers. It's mirrored there. And today, in the room here perhaps, in the city perhaps, somewhere, in the valley, in the nation, Men and women and children weep, cry out, as they bump into a world that is wrong and broken. Human beings, people, real live women, real live men, real life children living in a world in which there is someone above pressing down in which there is a real thing called loss and a real thing called pain and a real thing called sorrow and abuse. That's real. This world is is broken often due to our own sin, often due to the sin of others, sometimes due to this, this systemic sin that we can't even identify It's a world that's broken and we have minds and bodies and hearts that are broken and worn from sin and its penalty and its effect. And what we know and what we live in is discord and despair. Now, some of us, what I'm saying here, you need to just store up for tomorrow. Because bless God, by His kindness and mercy, you are not acquainted with that right now. Bless God for that. Some are. Some are. In this room, some of you I know. There is a crying. This is this is a world. This is a world marked with tears. People, some, some accuse me of being a glass-half-empty sort of person. I say I'm a realist. 
I want to be a realist and I want to say there, there, this is a world into which the kingdom has broken. Yes. Amen. Bless God. The kingdom has broken in. It is growing. There is common grace in the world. Absolutely. My goodness, read the newspaper. My goodness, let's be honest about what it's like to live in a world into which the kingdom is broken, but over which the kingdom is not yet dominant. And we must still pray, your kingdom come, because it ain't here yet. It is already come, but it is not here dominant yet. And so, because of that, this world is marked with tears and loss. We do a great job, and we have many resources in our country to address some of those things and to insulate ourselves from some of those things. But it comes. Let's be real about that. The beginning of Samuel is marked with great distress and tears. The end of Samuel is marked with great distress and tears. We need not think, oh, they were delivered and they sing for joy in chapter 30. Just keep reading 2 Samuel. It turns again. This is the real world they live in. The real world you live in. We need to be rescued. We are people in need. And in this situation that God creates, He's highlighting something here. He's saying, look, let me show you something. I am a rescuer. I rescue. I'm the answer to Hannah's tears. I'm the answer to these guys' tears. I'm the answer to your tears. God and God alone is a rescuer. Do not be deceived into thinking we have won this with our own hands. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. That creeps in always. That, that constantly creeps in because that's how we think. It constantly creeps in. And sometimes it produces ugly pride like here in this text. Sometimes it produces just more despair because when you realize, so you think, it's up to me, and then you realize, I can't do it. Oh, my word. The one I was counting on is too weak to deliver me. God says, I am a rescuer. I am way ahead of you on this, in fact. I've already started the rescue plan. Most of us in the room, most in the room know what that is. But it connects to the second piece of what this purpose here is. Not just to point out the nature of God and what His rescuing plan looks like. Setting captives free. Delivering them to freedom. But it points out who the deliverer is. Who the rescuer is. It's David, 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 David. 25 times. David. Particularly when you contrast it with verse 1 of the next chapter. The Israelites who are with David, what happens to them? They are delivered from despair to delight, captives set free. And the other Israelites, uh, the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Geboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons and struck them all down. There's your contrast. 
Who's the king they're supposed to look to? David. Who's the king we're supposed to look to? David. One like David, who in the moment of despair strengthens himself in the Lord. Who listens for the word of the Lord and obeys it. Who is compassionate on people who are weak. Who is tenacious in fighting and set captives free. Who loots everything that the wicked thought they had and gives it out to his people. To bless them in generosity. How does our David do that? Not in a physical battle against flesh and blood. This is all about the gospel. This is all about the cross. That's the place where the great David wages war in the moment of his despair to set captives free and to give gifts to us. What a great God who would deliver, who would save, who would rescue us through David, Jesus, the son of David. Now some of us, as I said, need to kind of store that up for the future or to, or to find a, a kind of a, of a new knowledge that you already knew to go back to when despair strikes you. But there are some that I, I just plead with you as you are right right now, or maybe not right now, but in this day, as you are uh, you are caught, as you are captured with what this world really is, that can be the, the great, on one extreme, a, a great despairing, weeping and a wailing. And on the other end, most often, I think for me, it feels like discontent. It feels like, uh, what, what's this about? Why can't I find rest? That, there's a great spectrum there. But if you find yourself right now, Christian or non-Christian, some of you here aren't Christians, I know that. That's okay. I'm glad you're here. What I'm trying to do is, is show you the text saying, David, 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 David. Jesus. That's where you find rescue. Not in your own hands. Not in this world that just promises more of the same. If you are in that place, would you please, oh, would God open your eyes, would you look and see this great God, gracious and merciful, kind and compassionate, has sent His Son, the Son of David, to come and be a great rescuer to you. To you. There is a hope for you. Not a hope in a different job that pays better. Get a different job that pays better if you want to. That's fine. You'll find the same problem there. There is a great God who had already, before you realized your problem, already was on the move to solve it by sending a son who would go to the cross and liberate us. To set us free from bondage. Bondage to sin and bondage to sin's consequences. The world is a wreck because of sin. Your life is a wreck because of sin. Some of your sin 
but other people sin all around you too. And God has said, I am addressing that. Oh, what a great God. Would you please run to Him and look to Him and find hope in Him? Bless God for His cross. The Son of David crucified to set us free, to give us access to a world made new, to the riches of God, to all manner of spiritual gifts and blessings in the heavenly places, and even broken into our hearts right now. God created this to show us who He is a saving, rescuing God. What He does when He saves, rescues from captivity, blesses and prospers us, and in whom He does it, David, Jesus, and Jesus alone. What a blessed people we are. This is glorious news. In a very real sense, if you are a Christian, in a very real sense, you live at the end of this chapter already. You see some of it. You know some of it. God has broken in. God has moved to set you free. And also, in a very real sense, we're still with David in verse 6. Because we're still amidst the tears. And we don't know how it all is going to happen, how it all is going to turn out. That's what leads us to the second point, which is shorter. The God of grace rescues his people through David. But now, here's the second point. In your moments of despair, strengthen yourself in the Lord. In your moments of despair, strengthen yourself in the Lord. I take this from David's response to his great distress in verse 6. It says that facing all of that, the loss of his family and the threat to his life, and who knows how real that, that was or what he thought would happen, but it says he's greatly distressed because of it. He strengthened himself in the Lord and then inquired of the Lord, should I pursue them or not? And the order there is important. Before, he had some circumstantial reason to find hope. Before, God told him, yes, you'll find him and yes, you'll rescue. Before that, he strengthened himself in the Lord. The order is important because what it's saying is that while it was still dark, he went to God and was strengthened in the dark. What does it mean to be strengthened in the Lord? It means to find heart-sustaining hope. Hope that there is more to the story than what you see or feel at the moment. 
And that more that you don't yet see is, is not confidence that all the circumstances are going to work out like you want them to work out. David has, doesn't have that yet. Which is really good news. Because if we look at circumstances in our life that make us weep, if you think for a second about that, at least half those circumstances don't get better. Right? Hebrews 11, the hall of fame, of, of faith there, it begins with wonderful things. The heroes of faith who conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises now, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness and mighty in war, and saw the dead raised to life. If, if that's what life is like, great. I, I can be strengthened in the Lord because I know the dead will be raised, I will conquer. But it continues, as all of life continues, and others suffered mocking and flogging and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with the sword, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, wandering in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. That too. Which comes when? Who knows? In the moment of darkness, when we don't know, in that place, we must be and gloriously can be strengthened in the Lord our God. Notice the personal my. The Lord my God. The Lord your God. The Lord our God. He's a personal. David looks at all that he's facing and, and he knows, I have no assurance that I'm ever going to see my my wives again. I, I don't know what's going to happen here. But he has a promise from God. Not that he's going to see the families come back, but he has a promise from God. God has promised that he will sit on the throne. Think what that means. God has promised him I'm going to answer your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm going to answer that. I'm going to put you on the throne. This is not where it ends. I promise. You don't know how it goes, but I promise it doesn't end here. It goes. He took this promise from God, His God, and strengthened Himself with it. I want to talk for just a minute about how to do that because that's what we must do in the moments of our despair. What does it look like? Well, I don't have a promise that I'm going to sit on the throne of Israel. But I do have a bunch of other promises. You take a book of promises. I'm going to direct your attention to one I think I've already mentioned before, but it seems tailor-made for a situation like this. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter chapter 1.
So what I'm saying is that in your moment of despair, strengthen yourself in the Lord your God. How do you do that? Take a passage, for instance, like 1 Peter 1. Take the passage and read. You could pick any, any place. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us, that's about me then, He has caused me to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you. And I pause there and I ask, I've lost something in my life. Maybe I've lost my family here. I'm David, or I'm one of those men in that city. I've lost something. Will I get it back? I don't know, but I have an inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for me, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. His power is what guards me. Not my, my faith doesn't guard me. His power guards me through faith. For a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, something's coming. In this you rejoice. And I say, Steve, in this you rejoice. I, I would rejoice. I would sing if if the circumstance would be reversed, if the families would come home, if we could find those raiders, whoever and wherever they are, and set them free and gain all that loot, that would be wonderful. But in this I will rejoice. In the moment when it is still dark and I'm still in the despair, I have no promise of anything changing. In this I will rejoice. Brothers and sisters, there's a glorious truth that has been opened up to you that you need not have every circumstance line up to be rejoicing. Through tears, Absolutely. Absolutely through tears. I'm not saying that we don't care about those things. I'm saying that in this we rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. You follow the grammar through. What it says is that it was necessary to grieve me. God, in His wise, gracious, loving nature, knew it was necessary to grieve me with trial. But in this I can and will rejoice. This is something won for me. I have a living hope through the resurrection of Christ, a fact of history. It happened. It's real. You take a passage like this. I, I pick this one because of how it sets up the rejoicing versus the grieving. It seems tailor-made for this sort of thing to me. You take a passage like this and you say, before it, before your God, God, you are my God. I have, I don't know what I have here on earth. It seems like I have nothing left anymore. It's all been burned down and taken away. But I have you, and what else is there to desire, to desire besides you? You who have won a great inheritance for me, and keep it for me, and promise it to me. God, help me. That's what you do. 
And then he says, in his timing, yes. I say in his timing because I don't know how long that takes. It doesn't say if David strengthened himself for five minutes or an hour or three. But in his timing, sorrow lasts in the darkness, but joy comes in the morning. And morning comes. He comes. He draws near to his people. To draw near to you. But the part that you must play is the verse 6 strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I caution you. What I find very often, and I find it as I talk to other people, but I don't need to talk to anybody else to find this because I find it in my own heart. Despair wins when I just despair. Doesn't sound like rocket science. But it's critical. Despair wins when you wallow. And we do. It's one of it's one of the the saddest things. I, I don't say this in any kind of a condemning way. I say this in a, in a mournful way. It's one of the saddest things that Christians who have bucket loads of treasure delivered to them say, "What a pauper I am." I do not want to in any way diminish the weeping and wailing and the weeping and the wailing that comes from loss in life. That's all real. I, I, I know. I know. I know. I know. It's real. So is that. Okay. That's real too. And you will be stuck in despair. You will never get out of verse 6. You'll never leave the darkness if you don't fight and strengthen yourself. God must give it. God must graciously descend and cause the clouds to part and cause the sun to rise. He must. He must. We are not God. He is God. We don't even control our own hearts. He controls our hearts. But He uses means. He sets us free by the truth transforms us as our minds are renewed. We grow as we behold glory. These are, these are the truths of the Scriptures. This is true, brothers and sisters. It's true. So with the psalmist, we say, why so downcast, O my soul? And we don't stop there. Put your hope in God. That's the strengthening part. Why should I hope in God? Because He's a rescuing God, full of compassion and mercy and grace, who is way ahead of me to rescue His people, whom He dearly, deeply, passionately, longingly loves. You've no, if you're a Christian, you have no idea how much He loves you. That's 
why you should put your hope in him. He rescues, and he rescues really well. He doesn't do like a 65% job of rescuing. I got back most of them, every single one. How does that happen if it's not a, a, a deliberately orchestrated event to show us something? Not a one? Not even a sheep lost? They didn't butcher one of their sheep for the dinner that night? No, not a one, nothing missing. Nothing. There's a message in that. He saves really well. We have a God who is a good rescuer who has raided the strong man's house, plundered it, and taken everything that he thought he had and is going to pour it out on us, his people, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Hope in him. Hope in him and strengthen yourself in this Lord your God. Let me pray. Oh, God, help us. God, help me, because my heart is just as fickle as everyone here's. God, help us. Would you show us some of the breadth and depth and height and length of your love for us and your passionate commitment to rescue your people? You have answered and you are answering Hannah's prayer to lift up your King, to raise up the lowly from the ashes and to seat them on thrones of honor. David and his men saw a little bit of that. We have seen some of that at the cross. There is more to come. Help us to believe it. Lord, help us to fight against despair. This is the hope of our hearts. It's the hope of Your kingdom's advance. It's the hope of the world that You were a good God. Oh, to be a church that rejoices in that. Help us, Father. Give grace to us. Grow us. Reveal Yourself to us. Give faith. Give sight. Give life. Build Your people, I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.